Liz Cheney was in Cleveland yesterday, and without really intending to, it looks like she made an endorsement in the Ohio Senate race. It's one of the stories we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney Astolfi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin, and Lisa is up first. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, a leader in the January 6th commission investigating how Donald Trump provoked the mob to try to overthrow the government, was at the City Club in Cleveland Tuesday, and she had a recommendation for Ohio voters. Lisa, what was it? Yeah, it wasn't quite a full-throated endorsement of Democrat Senate hopeful Tim Ryan, but she urged the crowd to reject election deniers like J.D. Vance and others all the way up and down the Ohio ticket, even if they disagree with Democrats. Um, We do know that Rob Portman, who is vacating the Senate seat, did endorse J.D. Vance. Cheney also threw her weight behind Governor Mike DeWine. She says he's a traditional Republican who respects legitimate elections. So the election theme was, you know, going on in her speech here. A lot of people asked her about elections on January 6th. And then she headed to Michigan. She's campaigning for another Democrat, uh, U.S. Representative Alyssa Slotkin. That was her first Democratic endorsement. And she said, Cheney said that, quote, I previously didn't vote for a Democrat, much less endorse one, but she's on a roll, apparently. So, of course, the Vance campaign had to chime in. Vance advisor Andy Surabian says that the Cheney endorsement could actually hurt Ryan. He's so delusional. She's so delusional that Cheney thinks she actually thinks her endorsement is a positive thing. And... uh, Others in the Republican campus said the election is to be decided by Ohioans, not creatures of the swamp. Yeah, creatures of the swamp. What was interesting, I like the way uh, the story said, for anybody that wondered whether it was an endorsement, she did clarify after the speech saying, well, I I, I guess I just just endorsed uh, a Democrat five minutes ago, which kind of reinforced it was an endorsement. Liz Cheney's been a a great figure this year. I mean, she really has been diligent on the January 6th commission. uh, And, you know, a small party wishes she'd run for president, right? Because somebody that's independent of party trying to go based on her principles, how rare is that these days in Washington? And really what she slammed Vance on was he's an election denier. And mm-hmm. that's preposterous for anybody to deny that Biden was duly elected is preposterous. What's sad is the Vances of the world have shifted. You know, LaRose has done this too. shifted from the election was stolen to there, there were real anomalies. I don't like what the courts did. I don't like some of the rules that were changed. And what that gets away from is we were in the middle of a pandemic And people Mm -hmm. were afraid to vote. We didn't have a vaccine yet. And so judges and elections officials were trying to make sure people had the ability to the vote to the best of their abilities, making decisions on the fly in an unprecedented emergency. And to have people like Frank LaRose going, yeah, I, I didn't like the courts getting involved. Somebody had to get involved because people were afraid to go to the polls. I think everyone's setting the table for the independent state legislature theory, which both LaRose and Attorney General Dave Yost told us in endorsement interviews was a plausible legal theory. So this is kind of table setting for that. Yeah, yeah, it's sad. So anyway, it's good to see Liz Cheney come to Cleveland and, and actually make her voice heard in an election. It's today in Ohio.
Cuyahoga County's Diversion Center was supposed to be a centerpiece of bail reform, reducing the jail population by getting people into programs for drug, alcohol, mental health treatment. Police were supposed to be the top users, bringing people to the diversion center instead of to the jail. So, Laura, what percentage of the people who have gone to the center were brought there by police? Uh, I, about less than a quarter, actually. It's it's really kind of sad. And this is an ongoing problem. This was supposed to be such a help for people who have mental health problems. It's supposed to actually help the jail to reduce the population there and all of the problems there. And all the people who really shouldn't be in jail, they should be getting help for addiction or mental health issues. And we talk about it on this podcast a fair bit, all of the overwhelming need for mental health services uh, everywhere, but especially in this county, and then they're not being used. So only, police have made only about a quarter of the referrals, 141 to 500 out of 400, sorry, 141 out of 545 people who have gotten the treatment there through September 6th and the whole year that have been open, everyone else either walked in on their own or referred by friends or family members. And there are a lot of empty beds, which seems incredibly sad when we know how big this crisis is. Yeah, but I, I the the sad thing is, is this really isn't the police officer's fault. This is the fault of mayors, city councils, and police chiefs who need to institute the training and policy making to say we believe in this. And you know, police officers, if they don't get the the direction and the coaching on how to make the decisions, the simple thing is just take them to jail because you're not going to get into trouble for taking them That's to the true. jail. But in every city that has a police department, they ought to be working on this. It's the right thing to do. You, you save taxpayers money. You help people thrive. But, but you can't put it on the, the cop on the street. They've got too much to think about. So unless you make this part of their training, part of the directives, they're not going to do it. So, you know, this is Justin Bibb. This is the police chief. And it's every suburban mayor and police chief not standing up and saying, we got to change our practice. You're right, because a, a cop on the street and operating by themselves in the middle of the night, they're they're worried about public safety, right? And they they do what they know how to do, and they take them to jail. And I agree that it has to be ingrained as part of the training because very few office, you know, very few of these police departments are making this a regular practice. So there's 35 law enforcement agencies who have made call to the the center. Cleveland Police, Transit Police, and Cleveland Heights have the highest intakes. Uh, they're still not very much. I mean, Cleveland, 171. That's not huge. And uh, But more than half the departments we're talking about have made less than five calls to the center. And one Strongsville lieutenant said this. I thought it was a really great quote that Molly Walsh got. She said, he said, unfortunately, our jails have become the modern day mental hospital. There are a lot of people we have in jail who have mental illness or addiction issues who probably could get better help at a place like the diversion center. So they recognize it, but they haven't been able to put this into practice yet. The, the, and I give Aaron Budish credit for getting this place open. But I also think he could do something by once they get taken to the jail by police officers, the jail could could get them moved. The, you know, people at the jail could say, no, 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 this this person could really get the help of the diversion center and they could move them. And that's not happening either. It seems like, you know, it, it, it was like halfway solving the problem. We got the center <laughs> opened, we got the big headlines 
And then there's no follow through and the follow through is everything. Hopefully when we get a new county executive, maybe that person can rally people together and get this ingrained. And county council is set to talk about this because they're considering $4.3 million more investment to keep it open for another year because this isn't funded forever. So hopefully they can bring people in and have a conversation and really make this a lot more public. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. As part of our big local issues polling this fall, we asked Northeast Ohio what it thinks about an idea to have a single municipal income tax for all of Cuyahoga County collected by the county. Courtney, this was an idea that was halfway floated by Lee Weingart, a a candidate for county executive. We ran with it in the poll. What did people tell us? Yeah, so some uh, interesting results here. We heard back, uh, you know, this was among 504 residents polled by Baldwin Wallace in the course of October in the greater Cleveland area. And 46% of those folks responded to a question asking whether whether a unified income tax would make their tax handling easier. 46% of the folks who responded said they uh, largely agreed with that notion. Um, but, you know, we also found that that the strength of response on this question wasn't nearly as certain as responses that respondents gave to other questions that were part of the poll. So maybe there's a little lack of clarity here for folks on what exactly a unified income tax would do for them. You know, we found that 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 respondents were were less sure about how this would impact their their bottom line how how this proposal would affect their tax payments we found that the the largest group of respondents about 39% couldn't say how Weingart's plan or a similar plan would would affect what they were paying out to their city 23% thought that their payments would stay the same and you know 21% thought they'd pay more 17% thought they'd pay less so I, I get the sense that there isn't super, super strong feelings on this one, but people are interested well, par- in it. Yeah, and part of the reason for their confusion is the way Weingart has pushed this. You know, he he's tried to simplify it to, I'm going to get rid of Rita. Well, it's not really getting rid of Rita. I mean, Rita is an agency that collects municipal income taxes for a lot of municipalities. It's just the agency that is the pass-through. So saying I'm going to get rid of Rita doesn't really tell people what it's about. But for anybody that lives in one place and works in another and has to thread the needle on how to file their taxes, this would clear up a lot of that confusion. And that's one of the beauties of it. Uh, to get there, I think there'd have to be a whole lot more education. That The idea at its root is good. It needs to be fleshed out. And hopefully, whoever wins on Tuesday, they'll see this as a as a possible countywide service and explore it further. Yeah. And, and like you said, you know, Weingart, it seems like one of the big selling points here. He thinks for most taxpayers, it'll be a tax reduction, though it seems like there are some cases where folks' tax would go up under Weingart's plan. But but like you said, he's, he's really pitching the benefit here of saving time and confusion so you don't have to do all that paperwork. Well, what he is pushing is is that if the if the municipalities didn't have to pay Rita to collect the taxes, if the county, which already has a property tax collection unit, picked up the income taxes, then that's millions of dollars that would be saved right right off the top. In addition, if you unif- if you make the rates uniform, 
he believes that most people would pay less. A lot I, of work I, needs to be done. But you just made the argument that the county is going to be more efficient than Rita. Yeah, but the county collects your property taxes. I know, and... but they're going to have to hire more people to That's do it. True. And the, and I do think Rita is fairly efficient. I mean, yes, there there's another bureaucracy, but like I think we're putting a lot of faith in the county administration at this point. But they collect your property taxes, and there's not an issue with that. So if they can collect the property taxes, clearly they can collect the the income taxes. I don't think that's that's really an issue you can slam them on. I mean, they do that. They've been doing. They it do for that. Years. No, I, I I just say I don't know. I don't know how much that's going to end up. County payroll would go I don't up know, with by the, a few million. I I presume if the county took on that function. Okay. And then we got the mayors and managers who are like, nope, let's mm-hmm. not do this. Actually, they're not, though. If you talk to them, they, they're intrigued by the idea. They just didn't like the way Weingart was railroading it. If, if you sat them all down and they really got to analyze what it would mean, they might like it. It's just this plan being railroaded, they didn't like that, that they weren't consulted in detail beforehand. I think even Chris Ronane has heard from some of them that this is an idea worth exploring if you're elected. So well, to, to, to be happens. fair, though, this is this this is a campaign promise, not a plan yet. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he's using yes. it to, to get votes. But if he becomes, if Weingart becomes the, you know, the county executive, then they can flesh it out. So... And even if he doesn't, I think it's a worth it's a worthy idea to be explored. And we just and don't have Lisa, a lot of answers. To Lisa's point, that's what he has said he would do. If if he gets in, he would then go he said that from the start. I would mm-hmm. then go work with the mayors and managers mm-hmm. so that everybody buys in because you'd need the buy in. It's today in Ohio. We had one unusual weather phenomenon on Tuesday, a dense fog that blanketed Greater Cleveland in the middle of the day. Lisa, anybody that was out and about around the middle of the day yesterday was taken aback by how low the visibility was. What caused that? And so thick. I mean, I was driving east on Mayfield to run errands and it kept getting thicker and thicker and thicker. So it developed uh, along the lakeshore areas of Cuyahoga Lake, Geauga, Ashtabula, and Erie counties. And the National Weather Service put out a warning of low visibility along I-90 for yesterday up until about lunchtime. So this is caused by big temperature fluctuations. The atmosphere was heavy with rain and moisture. And then steam fog, because of the temperature variations over the lake, steam fog over the lake just crept ashore. So this usually happens in the spring and fall when temperatures change pretty drastically. Um, In 2022, this year, we had eight days with what we call dense fog, most of them in the spring, January, February, March, and then July, August, and September. So throughout Ohio this year, today, We've only had 115 recorded fog days, and the fog that that was supposed to go through early Wednesday actually broke up, you know, right around breakfast time, so you could see again. But yeah, it was pretty thick fog yesterday. Yeah, I I was stunned by it. I I was I was I had to go downtown for a lunch. And I'm looking out the window and it's like, what's going on out there? And it just got thicker and thicker to the point where we were, I was talking to Laura. I said, we got to do a story on this. This I can't remember the last time in the middle of the day that kind of thick fog rolled in. Yeah. It, it, I like it, though. It reminds me, who's, what's the poem? Is it Robert Frost? The fog comes in on little cat feet. That's what it made me think of. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Cleveland has a new fire chief. Who is he? And why did Mayor Justin Bibb kind of keep his appointment quiet, Courtney? Well, let's start out with who he is. So it's uh, his name is Anthony P. Luke, and he's been with the Cleveland Division of Fire for 28 years, since 1994. He started, you know, as just a firefighter and has ascended the ranks over the course of his career. He moved up to battalion chief and finally assistant chief in 2017. And in his assistant chief role over the last five or so years, he's been in charge of some very important pieces of fire operations. He's overseen changes to dispatching and IT, and he's overseen things like staffing and discipline. And And we heard from Mayor Bibb that he, he chose Chief Luke uh, because, among other things, his experience with change management. So I'm kind of curious where the mayor's going with that. We know that he's got this effort out there. He's trying to, quote unquote, modernize Cleveland Fire. Don't know what that looks like yet, but it seems like Luke was the choice, at least in part, because of his experience with change management. Bib also credited his strong leadership skills and commitment to the city and why he reached this role. As for the rollout, I mean, I just think it was an odd rollout. Uh, the Cleveland Fire Department tweeted it yesterday morning. I wrote the story. After. Right. After he was sworn in. Yeah. Right? It wasn't. It, yeah. That's what was so odd. There was no announcement. We have a new fire chief. It was learning about it after the swearing in in a tweet. Yeah. Like we've selected somebody. He's now the fire chief. I mean, usually you get a heads up when you know when you know who who's going to be the next leader for something. But this was all done, wrapped in one. Uh, the city ended up sending out a press release a little bit later yesterday. Uh, to announce this. And I heard back from the city like late last night. I, I don't really know what the selection process looked like for Luke. It sounds like there was some kind of civil service component here that affects the selection process, but I don't have clarity on, on what that entailed or who else was in the running. When he named his permanent police chief, correct me if I'm wrong, he had a press conference with the new chief beside him so that they could take questions, right? Yeah, yeah, they did. And we didn't do that with the fire chief. I wonder if what you said about him being a change agent is why they kept this on the down low, because they don't want to answer questions about that. And so there was no press conference. There was no meet the new fire chief. It seems like a no-brainer for a mayor, good news, meet your new fire chief. Everybody likes a fire chief, right? So I, it's just an odd way to find out that Bibb has selected a new one. I wish I understood the way he did it. It's today in Ohio. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost is taking on a dollar store. What does he say the store is doing to bring the attention of the state's top cop, Laura? They are charging people too much money, basically more than the prices marked on the shelves. So they filed this lawsuit against Dollar General Corporation on Tuesday. It's filed in Butler County. It alleges unfair and deceptive acts and practices, as well as bait advertising. And, you know, dollar stores have gotten been under fire quite a bit by government in this section of the state because of the, they're so they're so over the top populated, right? It, they kind of drive out other businesses. So uh, this is just one more way that they're getting in trouble. Uh, the suit doesn't name specific instances, but Yost said in a news release that state officials permit up to a 2% error rate on overcharges. But in Butler County, he said it ranged from 17% to 88%. Think about that massive number. 
I, I, is there anything to be said about the timing coming as it did exactly one week before <laughs> Jost is up for re-election? I, I don't think you'd ever discount that, but um, but uh, Yost, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a politician and he's a very uh, public with a lot of his his actions as um, as AG. But uh, this has happened before. The state of Vermont filed a lawsuit against Dollar General, similar claims. They had a 2019 settlement of about $1.75 million, and they donated 100000 to a local food bank. And then in North Carolina, there's similar fines for similar practices as well. So this is not a totally out-of-the-box lawsuit. No, I just... It, it, look, you're going after a dollar store. You're complaining about the the cost of what they're charging. It's a, it's a great inflationary issue. Everybody's worried about the economy one week before you're up for reelection. It just seems I, I it's, I'm not saying there's nothing illegitimate about what he's doing. I mean, I think he's been very good on the consumer side as attorney general. He's gone after all sorts of different businesses that have scammed the public. He's been great about it, but the timing of this, we can't let it go unremarked upon. It's today in Ohio. The battle for votes in Ohio often becomes a battle for campaign donations to fund the campaigns. And we've got a box load of campaign finance reports we have not talked about yet from the late stages of this election season. Let's start with Ohio's highest profile race between Democrat Tim Ryan and Republican J.D. Vance. Laura, who raised more in the most recent period? Well, Ryan is blowing Vance out of the water, basically, and not just in this period, but um, all over. So Vance has raised about $12.7 million throughout the Senate campaign. That is a quarter of what Ryan's campaign has raised. Think about that. I mean, especially in Ohio, where Republicans dominate, that Vance has raised a quarter of it. So Ryan raised $9 million just from October 1st through the 19th, he spent $7.7 million. So he still has got a little bit of money to spend in the last uh, race up to the election day. And uh, Vance raised $2.27 million, spent $2.66 million. That's He's got just less than $3 million in his bank account. And both of these groups, or both of these candidates, do have outside groups that are raising a lot of money as well, the PACs. Yeah, that's the the deceptive part of this, is you, if you look solely at what they raise, it's half the picture, because mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of money that is spent by others on their behalf. But it's interesting how much money Ryan has been able to raise. Uh, and like you said, it's been all along. But and yeah, the outside money. So Vance has gotten boosted by a lot of national Republicans, 30, more than 30 million from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Like that is a I mean, that's 10 times more than he just raised himself. Yeah, but he Mitch McConnell wants control of the Senate because then he's the big boss. So it makes sense because this is a close race. Today in Ohio, let's look next at the races that don't get a lot of examination, the statewide races that are not for governor or senator, things like attorney general and auditor. Lisa, which way is the cash flowing there? The cash is flowing to the Republicans in all of these races. Um, and Republicans have outraised their Democratic challengers, because all the Democrats are challengers, not incumbents, by quite a lot, 10 times in some some cases. So in the attorney general's race, uh, between October 1st and 19th, Dave Yost raised $95,000 to challenger Jeff Crossman, $69,000. So not too far apart there, but uh, Yost has more than 
than a million in his war chest. Uh, Crossman only has $173,000 left in his bank. Um, Crossman did receive a $5,000 uh, bump from the Ohio Nurses Association. Secretary of State Frank LaRose, this is a really glaring disparity here. Frank LaRose raised $216,000 in the in the first couple of weeks of October. He has about 586,000 left in the bank, but Chelsea Clark only has $33,000 in her war chest. She only raised 17 grand between the 1st and the 19th of October. And don't forget, there's a third candidate in this rate, race, Terpeshore Morris, who is a QAnon adherent. She raised $0 and she only has $26,000 <laughs> left in the bank. And I want to point out that Frank LaRose and Dave Yost received checks of the maximum legal, you know, uh, contribution of $13,700. They each got a check from the affiliated construction trades union and from the Bricker and Eckler law firm pack. In the auditor's race, Keith Faber uh, raised $115,000 in 19 days. He has $1.3 million on hand. His challenger, Taylor Sappington, raised only $33,000 in that time period, and he has $77,000 on hand. In the treasurer's race, another big gap here, the incumbent Robert Sprague, he raised $86,000. He has about $337,000 dollars on hand and his opponent Scott Schertz are only raised about 12 grand and he's got just about $37,000 left. So yeah, the Republicans really outraised the Democrats, but the Republicans all are incumbents, so they have the power of incumbency behind them. Okay, I'm going to skip the governor because DeWine has owned that money battle from the start and did again in the recent period. But Courtney, what did we see in the race for Ohio Supreme Court? There's a lot at stake here with three races, including the chief justice. Where's the cash going? Who's giving it? Yeah, in these three contexts, uh, contests collectively, we saw that, you know, the Republican candidates for Supreme Court are outraising, you know, the Democratic candidates, 800,000 or so in this latest period for the three Republican candidates, compared to about 470,000 in the same period for the Democratic candidates. But um, we, we do see that the Democratic candidates largely have more cash on hand, despite those smaller fundraising numbers. But but I definitely want to zero in on the big race. Uh, Chief Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy, Republican, she 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 raised the most money out of all six of these candidates, three hundred six thousand, and you know a good chunk of that, almost half, came from the Ohio Republican Party Supreme Court Fund. So that's a, a big chunk of her earnings. But she also got money from like such as $7,500 from a credit card company connected to the limited and, and Columbus billionaire, billionaire Les Wexner. Now, if we go to her Democratic opponent for chief justice, Jennifer Bruner raised the lowest among all six Supreme Court candidates at $136,000. She got some cash from a law firm, uh, you know, a small share from the International Longshoremen's Association, 2500 from the Ohio Democratic Chairs Association, but, but, but much smaller than Kennedy. If you turn to the other two races, Pat DeWine raised $282,000, and his Democratic opponent raised $147,000. And then Republican Patrick Fisher raised $213,000 versus his Democratic opponent, Terry Jameson, at $166,000. Now, it is worth noting that, that Governor Mike DeWine's campaign fund gave $7,500 to each of the 
Republican candidates, including his kid, uh, Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine, and 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 we're really seeing the Ohio Republican Party juicing up these races on the R side of things. Okay, we're talking campaign finance in the final week before the election on Today in Ohio. Finally, Laura, let's talk about some of the congressional candidates. What's significant in the fundraising there? Well, I think the biggest race that we've talked about money-wise is uh, Amelia Sykes, the Democrat versus Republican opponent Madison Gisotto Gilbert. That's in the 13th congressional district. So Sykes, I mean, she has name recognition in this in the state, and she's outraised um, Gisotto Gilbert by, so she's had 370,000 that she raised in this last period compared to about 266,000 from Gisotto Gilbert. But remember, this is a small portion, just like we talked about with the Vance Ryan race. The 13th congressional district is actually one of the biggest in the country for outside money. And we're talking about $10 million in outside groups trying to spend in this because it's, I mean, it's an up for grab seat. Neither one of them are incumbents. And so uh, it's getting big money from outside. Like Microsoft executive Melinda French Gates, she contributed $2,900 to uh, Sykes. And so that's the biggest one. If you look in my district, the seventh congressional district, Max Miller has way outraised um, Matt Deemer, the podcaster who's a Democrat. And so, I mean, we're talking about $300,000 versus $25,000. And I think that's a story you see in a lot of the races with big name Republicans. Yeah, it looks like you're going to be represented by a hardline <laughs> Trumpster. So mm. I'm sure that's in keeping with the beliefs of many in Rocky River. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of uh, campaign finance, but it's important as we head into the final week. So we decided to spend some time on it. It's today in Ohio. That's it for the Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Courtney, Laura, and Lisa. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Thursday with more discussion about the news. Mm-hmm.